This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. Mike Centers is a graduate student from Virginia Tech who is studying the far right and their use of language and concepts to increase radicalization in online spaces. He's a longtime gamer, anime fan, and he brings a unique and fresh perspective to the daily information grind. We're thrilled to have him with us today. Mike, thanks for joining us, and welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Love the work you do. Well, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is you do, what you study? Yeah, sure. So I'm currently a PhD student at Virginia Tech in good old Blacksburg, Virginia. I am in what's known as the Aspect Program, the Alliance for Political, Social, and Cultural Theory. Uh, so it's an interdisciplinary program. I'm specifically getting my kind of focus in political theory. And my background is in research is in studying what I call the language games of the far right online. And so that's how do people in online communities, specifically within the far right, use their language, use their symbols to kind of form stronger in-group connections and recruit. Cool. Cool. That sounds actually really fascinating. And the idea that there's a person doing a PhD program in this right now is actually very encouraging. The idea that this is something that people are taking seriously enough to offer this in a course, that's impressive. I also find it refreshing that I think you're a member of Gen Z. Am I correct? So I'm 30, so... Oh, you're right on... Okay. I'm right on that cusp. I am right on that cusp. You, on your Twitter profile, mentioned that you're a liberal, and it just seems to me that a lot of the Gen Z, younger generation coming through kind of fall into the... Well, if they're on the right, they're a groiper or groiper adjacent, and if they're on the left, they're progressive. And I don't know how much that really bears out in reality around the people that, that you're in school with and talking to, but it does seem like liberals are a bit of a dying breed. So props for that. <laughs> I do my best. Uh, I will openly admit I went through my own kind of wild political journey where I went from being like apolitical to being like pretty radically progressive and then kind of mellowing out into a liberal. So it, it it takes some time, and as you spend more and more time online, you have to course correct. And mm-hmm. and and sometimes you see the people that you're following and you're listening to, and you think, oh, this is this is a good person. I like what they're saying. And then a certain story breaks, and you're like, wow, I don't mm, I don't agree with this. I don't I don't I don't support mm-hmm. this. And you kind of have to readjust and recalibrate. So I totally get it, and it's it's I think only getting harder to keep that center. Uh, especially looking if we're still on Twitter, it, I see the same people in my feed all day, <laughs> every day, and it automatically sends you back to that for you feed. And it's not that it's a problem. I like the people that I keep seeing or it's or it's the worst people in the world that I follow and I see their stuff and I have to read it anyway. But it does remind you that this is like 10 or 15 people and I'm seeing all their tweets and there's hundreds and thousands of other people that I'm not seeing right now. Nope. Nope. At the end of the day, it's an echo chamber, regardless of how hard you try not to make it an echo chamber. It's still going to be an echo chamber because, you know, the algorithm, it sees what you do and it feeds you the same content that you're already looking at. The goal is to keep you there. So they're going to feed you what it is that keeps you there. And in our case, that's what it's feeding us. So it's very, very tricky to get around that. It takes some, some real work and some real like sock account type moves to try and figure out other things. And it's worth doing. It's absolutely worth doing. Don't, don't ever let it become your reality completely, but yeah, it, it absolutely takes work. So 
Let's talk a little about the people on Twitter who are still tackling misinformation and fighting the good fight out there. Is there anyone or any groups in particular that you want to highlight? Yeah, sure. So the the first person I have to really, really highlight is uh, Shayan over at um, BBC Verify. Ah, yes. The work he has been doing ever since this conflict broke out has been astounding. Uh, each day he posts the thread where it's like, I think he's at day 14 or 15 now. I can't remember because every, every day is <laughs> melting together. But every day he posts a thread of here's some of the stuff I'm seeing. Here's why this is misinformation. Right. And so just that amount of work that he's been doing has been astounding. I hope the man is getting sleep when he can, because it <laughs> seems like he's working 24 seven. And I, I know it's not just him. He has a whole team behind him at like BBC verify that he's working with, but he's really been kind of the mouthpiece of that. Right. And he's been doing right. astounding work. Yeah. We had him on a few months ago and he is just great. The guy does a lot for the general cause of fighting the disinformation, fighting the, oh, this is a picture of Syria in 2012. Let's put it out and pretend it's current in Palestine. They aren't paying that guy enough. I know that. <laughs> Absolutely not. He deserves all of the money in the world for what he is doing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in terms of other people who have been really fighting the good fight, Sarah over at the ADL, uh, she's been doing really, really good. She's been something of a lodestar for me during all of this because while she hasn't necessarily been posting like fact checking posts she has been constantly reminding everyone to be like hey maybe don't immediately jump on uh the first story that comes out you know wait for actual verification for before you right. definitively declare declare one way or another that this is what happened and that's not a very popular position to have right now <laughs> saying, Hey, let's wait until we get some independent verification about this or even saying, Hey, I got this thing wrong. Like that's even harder to do. Right. right. When you come out definitively on a position and then it turns out not to be correct, actually coming out and saying, Hey, I jumped the gun. This was clearly wrong. And I apologize for that. That's even harder to do. And so reminding people to just be on their toes and to not let your emotions overwhelm you so that you jump on the first story that like clearly skews towards your side or your right. ideas or your ideology, it has been very, very important. Because there's been a lot of that. There's definitely been a lot of stuff that comes out. The first thing absolutely confirms somebody's priors and they're just all over it. Just, yes, mm -hmm. this is it. This is perfect. And it, it seems like the really smart people across the political landscape, that's the first thing they'll tell you is like, wait, just wait. Don't mm -hmm. jump on that first thing. Yeah. Anybody that's done this for a living or that's worked in military intelligence or I've seen people that have been a spokesperson for the State Department or anyone has had any sort of role either following this or talking about this in official capacity is, is saying the same thing. Just just wait. Just wait. And it isn't popular. And I, I've seen you on Twitter. And part of the reason I want to talk to you right now is because you have been fact checking some of this yourself or urging calm and, and people to consider the lack of information, taking a moment, taking a breath, which of course is not getting a ton of engagement because that sort of stuff never does, but nope. it, we we've really seen it and paid attention to it and think it's, it's important. And like, this needs to be the path forward. But I, I did want to ask you how you have kept a cool head amidst <laughs> all the chaos and the, and the hot takes the inflamed emotions how do you not let it affect you? Because it really seems like you're managing to keep your wits about you and, and not a lot of people can right now. Yeah. So I, I think part of the way I keep my cool is the fact that I specifically have a group of friends who I communicate with, who I do things with that exist completely and totally outside of this ecosystem. I play D and D with them over discord every Monday and Wednesday. And we don't talk about politics. We don't talk about the stuff going on in the Levant. It's just we're doing D&D, &D, right. and it's great. It's it's a way to remove yourself from that sphere, from the constant barrage of information for 
even just a few hours a day. And I feel like that's the thing that for a lot of us who are involved in this work is we're constantly checking Twitter, right? Even yep. though I want to be like, I don't want to check Twitter. Twitter is uh-huh. a bad place today. Yeah. Um, but it feels like we have to because there's so much going on. And so having that space where essentially you are bereft of being on Twitter for any amount of time helps. I work a part-time job at a cafe twice a week uh, for normally a couple hours a day. Even that time is really helpful for me because the manager at the place is a very traditional, no phones out while you're working sort of person. (laughs) But that's actually good for me because I can just not look at Twitter for three to four hours and that can be really helpful. Oh yeah. And helping to kind of vent and de-stress and not, not think about it. So that's one way I've been, I've been able to keep my cool uh, kind of, so to say Uh, another way is just remembering what our role kind of as I won't call myself a fact checker, but as someone who like is combating misinformation or doing their best to combat misinformation is Jared Holt actually posted a really good analogy comparing us to hall monitors and understanding that like our job is to try and slow things down to be like, Hey, to, to kind of, say the unpopular things of being like hey yes i understand like this is emotional this is there's a lot going on here but to be the people to say stop for a moment just stop and wait like even if people don't want to hear it someone has to say it and so understanding that that's your role even if it's unpopular can feel empowering at times yeah that's that's the thing we had to learn that at a certain point you you do run out of content you do run run out of things that you can say that you know are true mm-hmm. that you really can back up and you have the choice eventually to either just keep posting anyway <laughs> or to not and that that really is oftentimes what it comes down to do you do you desperately need to go viral or does your income stream at that point depend on you posting a viral tweet or several viral tweets every day, or does it not? And if it does not, then maybe just don't post. <laughs> Posting through it generally ends you in a very bad spot. Just word of advice, never ever try and post through it. No, no, definitely. It's one of those, like, if it's your job, <laughs> and it shouldn't really be your job, but if it's your job, yeah, okay, this is why people do it. But again, it's really kind of maybe you ought to rethink your life choices if your job involves going viral every single day, really. Mm -hmm. That's, that doesn't lead anywhere good. Speaking of going viral every single day for bad reasons, how much worse would you say it is right now? The constant stream of misinformation that's going on. It's been pretty bad. I mean, what I'd say is this is the first really big kind of historical moment event that's occurred since Musk has really taken over and removed the guardrails on Twitter. And we're seeing the consequences of that, right? And the fact that so much of the information that's being posted to the top of Twitter are people who are paying for verification, right? They're paying right. for that blue check and that most of the misinformation is coming from people who are paying for that blue check. <laughs> um, there are a handful of accounts that I know that have paid for verification that are trustworthy, but that's a slim, slim margin, right? And they're paying for that verification to try and to do their best to get to the top of that algorithm. So that way their news can be seen, right? But most of the people who are trying to combat misinformation, they're not paying for verification. And so we end up kind of in the muck, right? Yeah. And so it's been really, really bad. I mean, just the fact that Shane's having to post a thread each day for the amount of misinformation he's seeing over at BBC Verify, like that's something I've never seen happen before. No. And there's just so much of it around. So it's it's been really bad. And some people could assert that maybe this is what Musk wanted, uh, was to have Twitter become a place where you can't get verifiably reliable news anymore. Because you really can't, you really, even, even the fact checkers, guys like Cheyenne are saying that they're being overwhelmed with mm-hmm. the amount of what's going on out there. We've seen people who have been pretty reliable, just ready to tear their hair out over the sheer mm-hmm. amount of bullshit that's out there flying around these days. And 
if these are the professionals and they're going crazy trying to stop it all or trying to at least, you know, put something up to say, hey, wait a minute, then what chance does the average person who used to be able to tune into Twitter when something crazy was going on to get a good idea of it? It used to be really great for that. It used to be you could immediately get a sense of what was going on on the ground in the immediate area of any big event that was happening in the world. And now it's like you just can't you just can't rely mm-hmm. on this anymore. Well, and so much of it is is just content farming and and Twitter has stopped trying to curtail some of the spam because you'll you'll get people posting reaction videos and you'll get people that are searching through all of the trending words or topics and adding them in at the bottom of a tweet. And it used to be that that would catch Twitter's filter or they had people that would go through and take those out because this is just spam. This is just somebody trying to get views and clicks and they've stopped trying to do that. So you, even if you just do a basic search for any, whatever thing is trending, whatever thing you're interested in, if you're lucky, you'll find one or two out of 10 that are even related to the thing that you're looking for. And maybe you're, maybe those are accurate or maybe not. It's such a crapshoot. And, and for the average person, they don't have time for that. Yeah. And they're probably not even necessarily going to spend a moment or two to think about what they're looking at. They might just see something that, again, confirms their priors. And that's it. And it's reinforcing what they already believe. And I understand why tensions are so high. I, I understand like, there's not a more complex situation on the ground than, than Israel and Gaza and Palestine, but people just don't seem to be interested in looking for the truth. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with that outside of like us in the field doing what we can. Most people these days seem to just want to be confirming their priors kind of what i what i refer to as fighting for their team and like i get it like there are good reasons to kind of be doing that right um when you see the rhetoric coming out of the idf and of the israeli administration like it is the rhetoric of kind of ethnic cleansing of calling Mm -hmm. palestinians dogs and and i don't think they've ever said subhuman but like they it's very clear that that rhetoric is priming the idf for a campaign of ethnic cleansing if and when they actually physically roll into gaza so i i get it there's a really bad thing going on and you want your side whichever side you're on to always kind of be on the right but that's that's not how it should be right you should be willing to admit that even if your cause is an inherently good and just one that like, yeah, bad things happen and we need to have a kind of consensus on what reality is on what the facts on the ground are. And that seems to be what we've really lost is this ability to have a consensus to say, even if the stuff on the ground doesn't suit my priors, I will at least concede that they're happening. Now it's a matter of, you're not even willing to concede that X or Z happened. It's this is clearly Israeli propaganda or this is clearly propaganda being pumped out by Hamas. And if you find yourself saying that about every single piece of news that doesn't suit your priors, you should probably sit down and rethink your life decisions for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You got to have that sense of being able to filter it. You've got to have that mm-hmm. sense of being able to sit down, stop and say, I need to not immediately jump on whatever this is. I need to not be so reactive about this mm-hmm. particular thing. So uh, it's a tough skill to develop. A lot of people don't have it. A lot of people are definitely could use the practice on this whole thing. And it's <sighs> very much something that is not making the world we live in this environment any easier to deal with at this point. Well, and I I think we've seen the takes across the board and everyone wants to downplay the statements, the comments that make their side look bad and, and talk up the ones that make them look good or just. And yeah, there were, there were plenty of people who were cheering on Hamas as they were committing atrocities and war crimes, which very much what happened to Israelis and to 
thousands of Israeli citizens. It's it's horrific. So I don't think we should minimize the fact that this happened, that there were people who defended it and said it was justified and said it was okay, and it is not. But I don't think it's wrong either to, when we're talking about the Israeli response, we know so far there have been thousands of deaths and from the bombings before the possible proposed perhaps imminent invasion happens and i think we have to admit that however justified israel feels in this situation what ultimately comes of this their ultimate response could be far far worse than what has already happened and that that isn't okay. I, I don't, I, I sit here and I don't have the solutions and no one has for the last 70 years. But however justified Israelis feel, the sort of death toll that they could inflict on an, on an urban landscape fighting house to house amidst bombed out buildings, it's horrific. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I agree. And it really shouldn't be a controversial take to say, hey, I condemn the acts of terrorism that Hamas committed against Israeli uh, citizens, while also saying I condemn the acts that the IDF are committing of, you know, shutting down access to water and uh, and electricity and Internet to Gaza, of bombing Gaza relentlessly and of eventually perhaps going into Gaza. Uh, in inflicting untold amount of suffering and death on the citizens of Gaza. Like those two positions are not mutually exclusive. They should not be mutually no. exclusive. And yet in Twitter, at least on Twitter, they seem to be mutually exclusive. You have to pick one or the other. If you are condemning Hamas, then all of a sudden you are automatically saying, I therefore, you know, I am therefore very happy that Israel is dropping all these bombs on Gaza. And if you condemn Israel, then all of a sudden you're okay with Hamas slaughtering people who were at a music concert, right? Right. Like holding these two positions, which condemn acts of evil and atrocity across the board should not be mutually exclusive. But we've been on Twitter. The scene is so tribalized that that's what it's kind of become. And there are a few of us kind of left saying, no, both things are bad. But again, that's the unpopular position. Yeah, and it's just, for whatever reason, not acceptable to just put your hand up and say, excuse me, none of this is okay. None mm-hmm. of this is okay. This is terrible. These people shouldn't be doing this. These people shouldn't be doing this. I can't see why there isn't that sense of being able to say that. And then you realize you're sort of being funneled into it. You mm-hmm. know, regardless of which side is is doing it, you're being funneled into it both ways. So you mentioned in your intro that you've followed gaming culture for years, which explains your interest and observation of 4chan for years. Can you explain to people who don't know just how interconnected those two worlds are? Sure. So I can speak to that on both a kind of research level and a personal level. I will openly admit that back in high school and and college, I was on Chan boards a lot. I mean, I played video games since a very young age, and I've been into anime for a very long time. Those two kind of fandoms really coalesce in 4chan and in Chan culture in general. So gaming culture and 4chan are kind of intertwined at the hip. Like, And by gaming, I mean gaming and kind of air quotes, the people who really make it their identity, and they don't just like play Pokemon or Mario Kart, you know, for fun. Right. People who gaming is one of their really big hobbies um 4chan for the longest time was kind of the place to go to talk about games to talk about anime and where all of these kind of subcultures that were really more niche and more kind of nerdy back in the day in the early 2000s really coalesced and formed the community right right and it was a safe place in a lot of ways to talk because of the whole anonymous thing. Nobody had user accounts. Everybody just posted as a non, it it gave you that option. So it was, you could say pretty much anything you wanted to, you could talk about, 
anything that was bugging you. You could be brutally honest about whatever it was that was going on in your life and not necessarily have to face that same level of you know, social shame and judgment that you would have to face if you were trying to say some of this stuff in front of an audience who actually knew who you were. It seems to me that if you would go back far enough with 4chan, and I know you've mentioned this, that it hasn't always been a cesspool of extremist rhetoric. And I, I sort of wonder how much the development is related to just just time. And, and I think maybe the early channers, people that were on there were probably fairly well-adjusted humans who needed to blow off some steam. And one way to do that was posting anonymously online. You make your post. Maybe it's not a great post, but it, it's a almost a therapy session for you. You go about your day and you resume your normal routine. But as the years have gone by, we're getting younger and younger people who are not well-adjusted, who have not matured to a point where they can understand the context around what's real and what isn't. And I don't know how much that's responsible for the shift, but what what do you see as kind of the determining factor in making 4chan go so extreme? So I see kind of two really big determining factors that made it go extreme and specifically skewed it towards the far right in terms of the content that we see specifically on boards like Poll and, and V these days. I will kind of caveat by saying like the, the kind of extremist rhetoric was always there, but it was a minority, right? 4chan used to be a lot more kind of diverse in yeah. political ideology and just being able to post. Uh, two of the things that really shift that is the 08 financial crisis and the kind of moving of anonymous big a anonymous so the group the hacktivist group that really kind of went after some of these financiers and bankers and public figures after the 08 recession they originally were based on 4chan right that's where a lot of these people originally kind of met up and talked about putting on protests and organizing hacks and things like that they shifted towards irc internet relay chat so they moved off of 4chan and they developed their own communities on IRC. That left a bit of a rift in the kind of politics of 4chan where all these more kind of progressive leftist oriented people moved off of 4chan and the people who were on the right who had always kind of been there found that there were no longer kind of people that they were debating with and imposing their ideology. So, hey, free ground for us to do recruitment and to spread our ideology. So that was one big moment. The other was definitely Gamergate. Right. With Gamergate, and I know people think people blow up Gamergate or make it more significant than it was, but it really was a moment where the politics and toxicity that had been mostly contained to boards like Poll and the Incel board, whose name I am not remembering right now, like RK9 or RL9, it, it was essentially a proto-incel board, like before incels were really a term. Those boards had really kind of contained the toxicity of 4chan within them. Like, if you wanted the toxic far-right stuff, those are the boards you'd go to. Gamergate blew the kind of guardrails and the containment off of those two boards, and they moved towards boards like A, Anime and Manga, and V for video games. And it was this moment where young men on these boards who perhaps were politically apathetic, who didn't care much about politics or were nihilistic about politics, right? Like, I don't really give a crap. Like, yeah, things suck, whatever. I've got my games. It was a moment where they became politicized, where they, where people like Milo Yiannopoulos came in and said, hey, guys. These feminists, these SJWs, like they're trying to take over your hobby. Like you need to work with us to stop this from happening. And like these young men didn't necessarily care about any other forms of politics. But now that the quote unquote feminists were coming for their for their hobby, they became politicized. So it's those two big moments, the kind of moving of more progressives off of 4chan onto IRC in like 08, 09 creates this kind of toxic pool under the surface 
that then 2014, 2015 and Gamergate happens, that then erupts. Right. So those two really build on each other. I think a lot of people that don't follow this stuff closely still don't necessarily understand just how much of what we're seeing on that side of things goes back to Gamergate. I think Gamergate has been a really understudied phenomenon in terms of what it did to the culture in what we're seeing now. You, so many of these personalities, you mentioned Milo Yiannopoulos, um, Ian Miles Chong was another mm -hmm. one that came out of mm -hmm. that milieu. And all of these people realized that there was another pool of disaffected, for the most part, apathetic, somewhat angry young guys out there that they, with the right rhetoric, could get to do things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we've seen snowballed from there. So, Well, and Gamergate showed them that they could have some power and, and affect some change that they wanted to see in the world. And I, I would say, and I think you're probably alluding to it without even saying it, Griff, but what we're seeing right now with Jim Jordan trying yeah. to become Speaker of the House and the Republicans who aren't voting for him, who refuse to endorse him, are getting death threats. They're getting yeah. just inundated with calls and emails. And all. I, I listened to the clip from Jake Tapper last night about what... Uh, the wife of one of these reps, mm -hmm. the voicemail that she received. And it's, it's awful. It's yeah. horrific, but I don't think we have this. I don't think we're at this point without Gamergate. No mm -hmm. Gamergate was where that tactic sort of became acceptable. I think in terms of contemporary society and mm -hmm. it's obviously something that we all condemn and we all think is terrible. But like you said, look at the speaker's race, look at, the idea that they they did this, or at least they told their fan base. I mean, we can have that conversation about stochastic terrorism or mm -hmm. stochastic crank calls all we want to here. But for them to say last night that, well, we didn't tell them to do it, but it's going to keep happening until you vote for our guy. This is very much a tactic that came out of Gamergate. We're going to keep pushing you and we're going to keep pushing you in this direction until we get what we want. So it's pretty amazing how this became a tool of the far right in a way that it just was kind of unthinkable, you know, a few years before. I remember the first time I ran into it was probably about 2008 when I was working for a large tech company and one of my employees complained about something else one of my employees posted on the outside of his cubicle which was a habo hotel pulls closed meme i had no idea what the hell that was and i kind of had to say okay so where did you even get this why is this offensive walk me through why this is offensive because as a normie i have no idea why you would be upset with this and mm -hmm. then i find out about 4chan and b and it became something I kind of followed for a minute and kind of was like, oh, this is interesting. I have no idea this little subculture exists. And I watched the Project Chanology stuff. I watched the Scientology raids and kind of found myself thinking, wow, this is, they might be able to accomplish something with this someday. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, here we are. <laughs> Just, uh. So let's talk about another thing that's kind of boiling under the radar and it's, getting bigger. A lot of people don't have any idea what this is still to this day, but it's starting to have that same sort of, you know, kind of broader effect on the culture. Let's talk about VTube and what VTubers are. Can, can you explain to people how this started? Yeah, sure. So VTubers, uh, short for virtual YouTubers are just, they're essentially streamers. They're people who stream either on YouTube or on Twitch. And what they do is they, instead of having their webcam set up and just having their face, you know, on screen while they're playing a game, uh, they have a virtual avatar that represents them instead through, through rigging. And nine times out of 10, they're going to be within the anime aesthetic because VTubing as kind of a form of streaming originated um, in Japan. Specifically, uh, the first VTuber was a streamer known as... I or AI and the whole 
the whole idea was she was supposed to be an AI that gained sentience. And now she's out here um, playing video games and chatting with people. Right. Uh-huh. And some people actually bought that for a long time. They thought, Oh, someone actually created a program where, you know, she's, she's able to engage with chat as it plays a game. And it's like, no, there's actually a person behind this. This was right. a pretty big marketing boy, but it worked. And then the kind of big moment occurs when there's a company called hololive they're based in japan um they have a lot of talent under them and primarily they were japanese like for the longest time for the first two years they were just japanese but within chan culture within kind of gaming and anime culture in general you have a lot of people who went to watch um these vtubers stream even if they didn't really understand Japanese all that well, or if they didn't know Japanese at all, right. because within, within the chat stream, there would be people who would be actively translating kind of saying, well, this is kind of what she, she just said. This is kind <laughs> of what's going on in this conversation. And eventually hollow live realizes, okay, we have a lot of people from English speaking countries who are really engaging with this. They create what's known as hollow live EN hollow live English that happens in 2019 or 2020. I can't remember the exact year. I have to go double check, but they create the English branch of hollow live. And then it just kind of explodes from there. And now you see a lot of people who either on YouTube or on Twitch stream kind of using VTuber rigging or call themselves VTubers. And the reason it was originally so popular is because it combined kind of two of the big, fandoms that existed within multiple subcultures online it combined that anime aesthetic with kind of a love of japanese things the kind of otaku slash weeaboo fandom and it combined gaming right so you have those two things taking place at once on your screen and i mean it's blown up within kind of the anime subculture vtubers are now appearing at anime conventions and they're not like the real people aren't appearing, right? They are appearing as like holograms or as just like their avatars on a big screen and they're talking and <laughs> engaging with the audience through that. So it's this really like Baudrillard is probably like spinning around in his grave right. about how hyper-realistic this is. The fact that like people are engaging with this, with this representation of a person, but treating them as if they're real. Um, so that's kind of an elongated over explanation of what VTubing is in general. So it seems that there was a bit of a controversy not too long ago in that community related to the Hogwarts legacy game. Mm -hmm. And this comes about because the author of the Harry Potter series, JK Rowling has in recent years become a controversial figure and that's putting it kindly (laughs) for her statements (laughs) on LGBTQ issues. Can you kind of break down a little of what happened there? Sure. So one of the big things surrounding Hogwarts legacy is the fact that a lot of people who were progressive, who were queer, who were trans wanted to boycott the game because of JK Rowling and her becoming controversial as kind of someone who was not for trans people, uh, to put it lightly, a turf, a turf. Yeah. yeah, To be exact. So people wanted to boycott the game. This kind of started a feedback loop of reactionaries and turfs and bigots saying, well, I'm going to buy like 10 copies of the game. And like on Twitter, it was very silly to see people, like said, yeah, I went to my local GameStop and I literally bought five copies of this game, like as if it's some form of like, you know, political participation or activism. Right. But within the VTubing community, there was kind of a divide on if streamers should stream this or not. Now, Hololive as a big company, they kind of went two ways with this. They allowed their Japanese streamers to stream it but they pretty explicitly said, okay, we're not going to touch that in the English community. Um, so they kind of prohibited their English talent from playing it to try and like mitigate. The big controversy surrounds a VTuber who went by uh, Pikami. She was very popular. She was actually not at Hololive, but a competing company at the time. She was planning to scream Hogwarts Legacy, but then under her post on Twitter and on 
on, on YouTube explaining she was going to play it, there were people saying like, hey, this is really disappointing that you're playing this because, you know, I'm trans and J.K. Rowling is a turf and, you know, I'm just really sad that you did this. No outright threats from what could be seen, but she eventually decided to cancel her stream. Right. Bigots and turfs within her community interpreted this as, oh, she was bullied into canceling her stream. And then a couple of weeks later, she announced that she was graduating. That is the euphemistic term that gets used in the community when the streamer kind of says, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. So they took that as a sign that, oh, not only did they bully her into not streaming the game, but they bullied her off of like wanting to do this anymore. And so there was on Twitter, there was a very prominent campaign of, of people being like, hey, trans people, queer people did this and they bullied Pika me. This was really bad. And we started seeing posts of like, you know, trans people need to be driven out of the community. Trans people need to be pushed back into the closet. Right. There were people drew pictures of of this VTuber like burning the trans flag or stepping on it and just very nasty stuff. So we're dealing with a group and a subculture here that's fairly new and it's still kind of finding its feet. And this is obviously an important inflection point. And it does kind of make me wonder and I want to get your take on this. Is there a specific leaning to the fans and the following of the VTuber community? Does it, does it skew both ways? There's some progressives or some on the right, or is there kind of a a fear and concern that, that the fascists will essentially take over this space because it is certainly something that they try and often succeed at appropriating culture subcultures into their greater movement how do you how do you see that going in the future so it is very much right now what i would call a space of ideological contention um there are a lot of of people who are trans and are queer who have found uh, ways of expressing themselves through vtubing uh because what they can do is say you're a trans woman but you can't present openly in public because maybe your family is really bigoted. Maybe the place you work at is really bigoted. There have been people who have found that they have been able to express themselves through Twitch, through YouTube, through streaming as a, as a feminine presenting avatar, right? It's been a way of empowering people. Um, So there's, there's that side of it. But then the other side is the people who find VTubers from Chan culture who come because, oh, a lot of the really popular streamers fit very specific archetypes that fall within the kind of otaku community that are like very well known um, to the point of almost like it's almost like a fetish. And so you get that side of it, right? Right. So it is what I would call an ideological space of contention. And right now, especially after the kind of Pikami incident, there would be people who went on to the streams of trans VTubers and would be issuing them death threats, would be saying, you should kill yourself, you should quit. And that did drive at least a handful of people out of the community, right? Because they don't want to deal with that. No one should have to deal with that. Um, and so there has been kind of a movement of of like that occurring after that big blow up. And there's kind of been rhetoric in the space of saying we don't need politics in vtubing which whenever you try and make a subculture quote-unquote apolitical that is always a move of reaction to say like the only thing these these people should be doing is playing games and making jokes right and any sort of like political speech it has to fall within the accepted like language language boundaries of the people who are are dubbing what is political and what is not, which are almost always reactionary. Yeah, that it just won't work. It it you can't you can't do it. You can't separate it anymore. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it would, it would be great if we could. It would be great if we could have hobbies that did not 
become political, but even I think there is a desire for that 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 remains on the left. I don't it's maybe not that strong anymore, but when you have the right in particular creating apps that tell you, yo, you're at the grocery store and this ketchup is made by Heinz and we're going to give them a woke score. And if they're, it's too woke, well, then you, well, I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to support that <laughs> that brand and that company. They've they've hired too many black people or they've they've posted something about DEI on their website. So we, we don't we don't give money to them. But when we're, we're at that point where the right is literally telling you which brand of laundry detergent is acceptable to buy, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, we're just, we live in that world now and it seems like no matter how much you want to try and get away from politics, you're not getting away from politics. You're just not, no matter where you go. Yeah, And kind of going back to what I said earlier about creating spaces where you kind of can, like that's, I think, one of the most important things that you can learn to try and do is just get a group of people where for maybe two hours two hours a week, three hours a week, you just do a thing. Right. And that's that you do the thing, you do it with this group of friends and you talk about how, you know, you talk about how you think a specific rule change in D and D is silly or stupid. Right. Right. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Going offline is, is the key there. Touching grass. Yeah. And I definitely agree. We all need, at least an hour or two a day where we are not online. Mm-hmm. Ideally, it would be more than that. But let's let's be honest. Let's be realistic. It's like when they they the professionals say, "Well, your kids shouldn't have any screen time before <laughs> the age of six. Nobody does that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely nobody does that. And it's it's interesting to see how as tech has become more and more ingrained, like in the household how young are kids when they first have contact with some of this stuff, right? Specifically with things like TikTok. I remember Jared posted something on Twitter talking about how kids as young as 12 and 13 on TikTok can be finding pretty graphic stuff uh, on the Israel-Palestine conflict, just on TikTok floating around out there, right? And so I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, how part of the problem is when people are first coming into contact with all this stuff, they're not as well adjusted as people used to be when they first came into contact with stuff online. Yeah. And it seems like out of all of them, TikTok's the one where there's virtually no content moderation happening. I'm sure that they could probably point to a department and say, well, these are our content moderator people if they were directly asked, but they Mm -hmm. don't really seem to be doing anything based on the amount of various types of content you can find. So yeah, the idea of letting kids 11, 12, 13 at TikTok, just we're going to be paying for this one for a while as a society, Mm -hmm. as a world. And that's where they are. The, the problem of content moderation is apparently just going to hit all of the major social media companies, but I'm with you. It's, it's particularly bad on TikTok, and it's concerning because that's where all the kids are. Yeah, definitely. Part of the reason I think that we're seeing such a turn towards things like TikTok and these virtual communities is that we have this deep sense of loneliness in the culture currently. And it seems just looking at it, that this is very pervasive that we have it everywhere. People just don't do a lot of the things that they used to do anymore, where they would have that kind of social interaction. What are you seeing and how do you think we can maybe make a dent in this? Yeah. So I would definitely agree that a large part of why people are drifting towards this these communities be they good communities or toxic communities is the fact that people are trying to fight this sense of loneliness that is more pervasive like i will it might be an unpopular hill to die on but i will die on the hill that you know nine out of ten young guys that go onto 4chan or or end up becoming kind of white supremacist through contact with 4chan 
uh, or Chan culture, they don't go into those cultures as white supremacists. They might have some aspects of their lives that predisposes them to it. But the reason that they end up where they end up is because they find a sense of community that they can't find anywhere else for one reason or another. And understanding that that's the issue, that the issue is that these young men are seeking a community and that they find this community amongst some of the worst people in the world. That's the issue that we need to be focusing on, on how do we combat this? And this has to do with the kind of overwhelming flood of information and and context that exists in digital spaces. Speaking to other people, you have to understand the context in which they're presenting, you know, their words or their phrases, right? And it used to be that you only had to understand the kind of context of the people in your immediate physical surrounding, right? Uh, Because you didn't have the ability to talk to somebody halfway across the country or halfway across the world. That's kind of how regional dialects end up getting developed, right? But with the advent of the internet, we see this kind of expansion of having to understand more and more people's context in order to really connect meaningfully with them in one way or another. And that's how we end up creating echo chambers, right? It becomes too burdensome, too emotionally draining to understand the context and the lived experience of so many other people that it's like, okay, I'm going to find a handful of people or a community where I understand their whole, their context, their lived experiences. And that's going to be my world. That's going to be my community. And so that's what happens with these people who go into 4chan and end up coming out as white supremacists, Right. And I think the reason like people like Milo Yiannopoulos were so effective in recruiting these young men is they started from a place of shared context and shared experience. They didn't come for them for the politics first. They said, Hey, I like video games too. I like comics. I like anime, whatever the kind of subculture or hobby they focused on. They were then able to create that sense of community and then inject politics into it. Right. By saying, Not that any community is completely bereft of politics, but they were able to inject their very specific type of politics into it. And where these young men were already in this community, if they had opposing opinions, they would be ostracized, right? And eventually, if you're ostracized enough, you leave. And for a lot of these young men who didn't have anywhere else to go, it was, okay, I can either say, hey, guys, maybe all this anti-women stuff that we're saying isn't the best that will get you kicked out of the group. So you either silently affirm or vocally affirm your belief in kind of the, the group rhetoric and the kind of rules that get established about what is okay to say and what is not okay to say. And then it's just a downward spiral from there. So, and how we combat this really trying to find shared context shared lived experiences even if they're very minor things with someone online like hey we both watch soccer like that's a shared experience we can both talk about how much we really hate man city that's a shared experience right and you can build from that because trying to understand someone's lived experience of like say living in gaza like most average Americans aren't going to be able to relate to that. It's very, very hard for an average American to relate to not having access to water, to constantly living in fear of being bombed. And so you perhaps can't start there. People will say, well, you should be able to empathize with that. Not everyone is able to empathize with with a person living halfway across the world in a situation that is completely alien and foreign to them. But If you find a place of shared context to start from, you can then work on creating a relationship of mutual understanding. And that is very hard to do. That creates a lot of emotional work on kind of both sides of things to make sure that if there is miscommunication, misunderstanding, you you find a middle ground, you rectify it. And not a lot of people are willing to put in that time or that emotional effort. But if we want to try and understand and try and stop people from going down these extremist holes, I think that's an important first step is to focus on, hey, these guys are not inherently evil. Like they're finding a sense of community here. Right. 
how did they find that community and what led to them staying with that community when it kind of began to spiral into extremism? Well, and you mentioned Milo and his ability to recruit and the fact that people who didn't get on board were ostracized. And I, and I feel like you really hit the nail on the head with this, this argument and, and how we can move forward. But I also, I just wanted to, to point out and highlight the fact that most people will recoil from these ideas from taken in a vacuum, these extreme opinions and stances that these particularly young men end up taking sound awful and absurd. And if you're not a sociopath, you're going to have a point when you say, I don't, I'm not okay with this. But this is why for them, I think sarcasm became so important and has been such a driver in this is why can't you, oh, you think it's it's bad to say Hitler is good or that the Nazis did nothing wrong. Why can't you have a sense of humor? You, you can't take a joke. And, and they just joke their way into mm-hmm. becoming radical extremists because they don't want their friends to call them lame or they don't want to be excluded. They don't want to be a boomer. <laughs> and it's just something that I, I think I always want to keep in mind and make people aware of that. No, it's not just a joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's never just a joke, and irony posting has been a hallmark of just internet culture in general for a very long time. It goes beyond dysfortune, it goes back to something awful, uh, and even further beyond that. And eventually you have to you have to draw a line and say, like, look, even if you are irony posting, even if you are shit posting, like at some point your shit posts become genuine. Like you genuinely start to believe what you're saying, even if you were only saying it ironically. And I think one thing Yiannopoulos and others, especially at the start of Gamergate were able to do is they were able to present arguments that did not seem so radical or so distancing from the average person at the very start, because the initial line of Gamergate was ethics and game journalism, (laughs) right? That's not, radical like that's something that people can kind of look at and say well maybe i'm on board with that maybe not so you get people with that initial hook of this isn't crazy this isn't bigoted in any obvious way and then that's when you start you know creating that sense of community that when you get to the radical stuff that when it becomes okay like we need to start sending anita sarkeesian death threats at that point you're so immersed in the community that you don't want to leave and you either use irony as a shield to be like, Oh, we didn't really mean that. Or, or you start just wholeheartedly embracing it because you don't want to be ostracized one way or the other. And I think that's what Gamergate was really effective at doing was creating a narrative that drew in a lot of people because it wasn't inherently radical to begin with and then move the, the bar just enough over time that they didn't lose people. Definitely. So what gives you hope for the future? What gives me hope for the future? Uh, <laughs> well, it's the fact that even within these fandoms and communities, right, uh, we're, we're seeing more diversity, more kind of inclusion of various different peoples over time. Like the anime community in general, one that I've been a part of for a very long time, uh, has become more diverse over time. It used to be that when I went to anime conventions back in the early 2000s and the 2010s there were not a whole lot of people of color at these conventions it was predominantly young white people queer people did have a space but they were more marginalized even at anime conventions these days i'm seeing more people of color i'm seeing more openly out queer people and that's good these communities are becoming more inclusive over time So I think that's good. And by having more people be involved in these communities, being able to create these kind of bonds through their hobbies, we're going to naturally kind of drive the more extreme elements out towards the fringe. I feel like we are already doing that. That creates its own issues of them being on the fringe. But I'd rather have extremists be on the fringe of a hobby or the fringe of a fandom than be its nucleus or close to its nucleus and core, right? Right. So 
that's one thing that gives me hope. And the other thing that gives me hope is the fact that there are people doing good work out there on all of this stuff. You guys doing the pod, everyone kind of within misinformation, disinformation research who, despite all of the bad crap we get, continue to do the work. And it's not fun work, but we do it because we realize that there is an inherent problem here. And if we don't combat it, then we're going to be in real big trouble. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been great having you. Really appreciate your time today. You have given us a lot to think about. This has been really enlightening. So thank you for coming on with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me and keep up the good work. Thank you, sir. You take care. You too. Thanks, man. Bye. Thanks for listening to the did nothing wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ, G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.